All right, we're going to start here in just a minute. I assume that us being who we are, we're going to start on CrossFit time, which means over the next five or ten minutes we'll actually fill up a little bit better in here. If you didn't get a set of notes, make sure you get them. Hopefully we have enough printed off for everybody. Uh, we're, we're dealing with a fairly broad topic over the next uh, six weeks or so. It'll be a little bit challenging for us, uh, but we're, we're just going to have to kind of dive in, figure it out as we go, and hopefully that will be helpful to you. But I imagine the first week or two, you're going to just kind of be trying to catch your um, place and try to understand uh, where we're at. And then hopefully by, by three or so weeks in, you'll get a feel for what we're doing. Uh, so feel welcome to interrupt me, ask questions, um, or whatever. It's, we're fairly laid back this morning. Um, so the topic is dispensationalism. Um, when I define dispensationalism and I read most of the material about dispensationalism and covenant theology... It's like you're jumping into a debate, and, and people are talking, and they're not really defining because they assume you already understand the issues. Most books that deal with dispensationalism or covenant theology do so assuming you already get kind of the dynamic. So I, I have this experience frequently in my house. I'll come home. My children, they're currently enjoying the TV show NCIS. And I'm usually starting like halfway in, like I'm, I'm between stuff. I sit down and I'm like, okay, who's doing what here? And I'm trying to understand who died and what the relationship is. I find most books are a little bit like that with this topic, is, is that you have to play catch up and then once you kind of figure out what's going on, you can understand uh, the field a little bit better. Uh, so I'm going to start with a little bit of a, an introduction to what dispensationalism is this morning. And then give you kind of a classic overview of dispensationalism, probably take us a couple weeks to do that, and then kind of get to a little bit more of where it actually matters and how we view the scriptures. So um, that's kind of the plan that we have in front of us. I could get derailed, and that's okay. And when I say derailed, here's what I mean. If our church is really trying to understand something, I'm going to take time to try to help us get it, not just plow through notes. Again, my goal is that at the end of this, you be able to understand the Bible a lot better. you be able to have a better understanding for when you jump into a text, the storyline of Scripture, and who, who the audiences are and how we connect. So it should significantly help your Bible skills when it comes to interpretation of Old Testament Scriptures, Old Testament promises. It should significantly help you um, understand eschatology, the end times, better. Um, so those would be a couple of my kind of broad goals for our church, is that when you read the Bible, y- you, have, you have skills, and, and this is going to sound cheesy maybe, giving you a little bit of a Swiss Army knife for hermeneutics and for biblical interpretation. You know, it, it, it'll help you with a lot of different things. You may not, unless you go to seminary, have all of those well-developed and have kind of the whole toolbox, but if I give you a Swiss Army knife, no matter which place we parachute you into Scripture, you should have an ability to handle it fairly okay. Um, Does that make sense? And I think because of that, that will help you with your eschatology. Okay, having said that, the goal of this series is not to debate covenantalism and dispensationalism. Uh, The more I've studied the issue, the more I work at it, uh, the the more I feel comfortable and convictions with where I rest theologically. Um, I have good friends who are covenantalists. I think they're wrong. I think they, they should change their theology to be more biblical. And they think that about me. Um, but what I don't want to do is present kind of a wishy-washy, um, confusing set of things 
and you walk away not sure what you should believe. I'm going to tell you what I think you should believe and wise and godly people will work through that biblically. Okay, so um, uh, there, there are certain things that a covenantal type of approach holds to that I, I, I just cannot sympathize with their position. I think it's nonsense. And again, they would say the same about me. Having said all that, again, some of you, especially those of you who are more theologically minded, are going to be frustrated that I don't, do, don't go deeper. Some of you that are less theologically minded are going to be frustrated that I'm going so deep. So, welcome to the place where no one is happy. Um, so let's start with definitions a little bit, and I'll, I'll give you a little bit more than I have in my notes. Uh, this is from Millard Erickson's um, Concise Theology. He says, dispensationalism is a system. So let's just stop right there. The idea of system means we're trying to, we're trying to get you a picture of the whole thing. You know, like a car is a system. Usually you go to a mechanic because a piece of your car isn't working right, and maybe systems within the system don't work, so your AC isn't working because a fuse is blown. Okay, the fuse is a, a, is a piece connecting a whole system electronically in the bigger system of the car. So when you talk about dispensationalism or covenant theology, we're talking about like the whole car. All right, so if we just try to give you a one-lesson understanding of covenant theology or dispensationalism, we're not doing justice. We're just like saying, hey, there's a car. It has four wheels and an engine. And you really don't know how it works or why and what its purpose is. All right, so dispensationalism is a system of biblical interpretation and of theology that divides God's working into different periods that he administers on different bases. It involves a literal interpretation of Scripture, a distinction between Israel and the church, and a premillennial, pre-tribulational eschatology. I don't fully like everything in his definition, but he's, he's a covenant guy, so I thought his definition is fair. Um, covenant theology, this is also his definition, and I think this is pretty lame. Theology that views the relationship between God and humanity as a type of agreement between them that governs the dealings of God with humans. Now, the reason his definition is lame is because he's not seeing how the divergent theology, dispensationalism, shapes covenant theology. In other words, I would say this. Covenant theology views the relationship between God and humanity as, as singular or holistic. Uh, this is something a covenantal person would not like, but I would say that covenant theology generally has no place for there to be distinct peoples within the people of God. So that ultimately you'll get something like the church replaces Israel as the people of God. So that in the New Testament era, God is working with the church, and when you read the Old Testament, you almost read the church back into it. Okay, that's uh, sloppy, but, but uh, that's the essence, I think, that covenant theology ultimately gets to, with, particularly as it comes to the future promises that Israel is given. Okay, so generally, most, most articles don't work through a good definition and a good um, understanding of dispensationalism particularly. And that's going to be one of our goals for this series, is that you just understand how to approach the book. So, um, two, two major issues to me that are, are the difference between these theologies. What is the nature or relationship of Israel and the church? Okay, what is our relationship to Israel? Because we're the church. How do we relate to the Old Testament people of God called Israel? And number two, how is one supposed to understand the Bible's use of Jewish terms and promises, particularly in light of the New Testament era we live in? I think those are the two central issues of the whole thing. So if we're talking about the theological debate, and I know this isn't uh, super interesting right now for some of you, but if we're talking about how we view the Scripture, 
We have an Old Testament and a New Testament. And generally speaking, the Old Testament centers its focus on the people of God named Israel. And the New Testament focuses its concern on the church, the New Testament people of God. What is the relationship between these two? And did the Old Testament in any sense prepare us for the work of the church? And if so, what does that mean about the promises to ancient Israel? And how are those answered within the church age? That's some of the the tensions we have there. Okay. I think Michael Blocks is actually a better explanation of of what a dispensationalist believes. He's a dispensationalist. Um, We have copies of his book, I think, on the rooted table. And if we don't, I have about eight on my desk of this book. It's about an 80, 90-page book. I think it's a really, really helpful explanation of the major major, um, principles we hold. But again, it's not a very good explanation of the the reason for the, the held beliefs. He doesn't really explain why we hold these things. Um, he defends them, but he doesn't explain why. Okay, so number one, the primary meaning of any Bible passage is found in that passage. The New Testament does not reinterpret or transcend the Old Testament passage in the way that overrides or cancels the original authorial intent of the Old Testament writers. Number two, types exist, but national Israel is not an inferior type that is superseded by the church. Now, when I say type, I realize we have a definitional term here for y'all. Does anyone know what a type is? Wait, I shouldn't say does anyone, because I know you seminarians probably know. Does anyone who hasn't gone to seminary or Bible college know what a type is? Okay. The, the word itself, think, think like typewriter. Does any, has anyone ever used the old mechanical typewriters who's under the age of 35? Okay. Okay, you, you click a key... Like, let's just say we, I don't know why you guys are laughing. There's the rumbling laughter going through. So you click a key, and you used to have this mechanical arm that would come up and slap the paper. And, and usually, depending on how it was as inked, sometimes you'd have a piece of tape between the paper and the arm, and, and that, that piece of tape would be inked. And it would, it would mechanically hit the paper and slap that tape into the paper and leave an imprint that little letter, you know, is actually backwards, right? That's a, that's a type. And it would leave on the paper its letter, its imprint. When you think of the Old and New Testament, a lot of times you have something like that. You have this first thing, a type, that, that is telling us what's going to be coming in the future, the anti-type. You know, so, so an example of this is really clear is the sacrificial system is a lamb. The lamb representing a future lamb, right? Jesus Christ is called a lamb, not because he had wool and was furry and bounced around a field, but because he had, had this typological relationship between a sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament that had to be what? Anyone? I heard spotless, I think. What? Well, it had to be, it had to be a blameless or a, a, a whole lamb, right? In Malachi, they get in trouble because they're offering lame lambs, you know, sick ones. So that'd be this whole, healthy lamb, innocent, blameless is the picture because Christ is our innocent, blameless animal dies for us, right? This human that dies for us, this animal in the Old Testament dies as a representative for us. And so you have this, this type. And so when he says types exist, he's telling us that 
Dispensationalists recognize there's imagery in Scripture in which you have a prefiguring of something coming. Because one of the criticisms of a literal approach is there's no room for kind of this imagery. Well, it's not true. Number three, Israel and the church are distinct. Thus, the church cannot be identified as the new and or true Israel. Spiritual unity and salvation between Jews and Gentiles is compatible with a future functional role for Israel as a nation. Number five, the nation of Israel will both be saved and restored with a unique functional role in a future earthly millennial kingdom. And number six, there are multiple senses of the seed of Abraham. Now let me just kind of highlight that. It's pretty clear in uh, Romans 4 that someone is considered a child of Abraham if they have faith. Because maybe you could say Abraham's spiritual DNA is that he believed God and was accounted as righteous. Therefore, in the New Testament, how do you inherit the promised blessing of, of, that was given to Abraham? What do you have to do? You have to believe. And if you believe, you, in a sense, are his spiritual offspring. Like him, you have faith. Like him, you are accounted righteous on the basis of the work of God as you believe. And so we come to the New Testament, and there's this idea that we're children of Abraham if we believe. That doesn't mean, however, that somehow Israel has been pushed to the side and is now nothing in the future. Um, the nation of Israel, both be saved and restored, have a future earthly millennial kingdom, and then number six, multiple senses of the seed. Okay, so chapter two. So I want to get to kind of a defense of those points by, by big picture story arc here. I want you to, do, for a moment, picture David and Goliath. You got this battle scene, right? We have the Philistines. They're assembling on about six miles of ridgeline over a valley. And they're getting ready to enter that valley. And in that valley, they will do battle against the armies of Israel who are encamped on kind of a northeastern valley facing southwest, and the Philistines are kind of southwest facing northeast, and they're facing each other. They're about ready to do battle. You guys got this picture in your mind? Lots of tanks, bombs, soldiers kitted up with M16s, right? That's what you're picturing? Anyone picturing that? <laughs> Good, I'm glad no one's picturing that. Uh, maybe, maybe if you're really creative, you're picturing kind of a Native American and, you know, leathers sneaking through the woods with bow and arrow. Not picturing that either, are you? What are you picturing? You're picturing a big guy and a small guy. You're not picturing the armies at all. You're just picturing David, Goliath. Okay, what are they wearing? Robes? Sandals, okay. <laughs> Apparently we have a bunch of naked men wearing sandals. That's what James has got in his mind right now. Oh yeah, I mean, I'm picturing some type of battle, regalia, maybe something, not like Romans exactly, but prehistoric Romans, you know, some hardened leather gear, right, shields, probably. Spears, maybe, bows, maybe. Right, like, like kind of ancient warfare type of gear, and they're facing each other. Our minds probably intuitively went there, not tanks and machine guns, probably not Native Americans with leather gear. 
we're probably thinking kind of, I mean, I'll say Roman because I think that's the thing we most picture when we think of like ancient battle formations, um, but maybe a scaled down version, a more simplified homespun version of Roman regalia in terms of military work. But I want you now to picture David getting ready to battle Goliath. And he says something like this, battle belongs to the Lord. Why would he say that? Well, before we go there, how many of you have heard a sermon that says something like, we should fight our giants, <clears throat> that we can slay our giants, we are like David? I want to see the hands here. I want to know how many people have been spiritually abused. Okay, I only got about two-thirds. I'm, I'm actually encouraged that it's only two-thirds, y'all. Okay, David says... He, he, he clearly believes the Lord has got this battle. Why? Do you think this is a promise that the American military, if we go to battle against Russia and Ukraine, can think this battle belongs to the Lord? Is this a, ver is this a verse that you could use maybe when talking to your neighbor about Jesus? Fair point. Clearly, your background is killing me here. <laughs> My point is the whole thing, Mr. Technical. The whole, the whole work that David does to get to that point where he says the battle belongs to the Lord. That whole thing. Could we say that whole thing? Does that make sense what I'm asking, really? Because I, I asked it in shorthand, and you, you narrowed it, on, and you're correct. That's why I called you Mr. Technical. Because I'm... I'm thinking through the whole work that leads David to say that conclusion. Could we say all of that? And the answer is absolutely not. It's a covenantal promise taken out of the promises given on Sinai and then repeated in, the, in, in Deuteronomy that, that call us to be, like call, call Israel to understand that God will be with them in eradicating the Canaanites. David sees it. And goes, this is us. This promise is for us. This promise should be held by us. We should act on the basis of this promise. And so when I hear people talk about, like, we can slay our giants, I'm thinking, are you in Canaan? Are you Israel? Are you trying to eradicate the people who own your promised land? What happened here? Because this promise is very narrow. And David knows exactly where he fits within the stream of God's revelation. He jumps in the middle of this NCIS murder mystery, and he knows exactly what's happening. And we jump in and say, this is for me. And we have no clue what's happening around us. Okay, So we need to understand the story arc of Scripture and what's happening. Or we will end up thinking we can go kill our Goliaths. Okay, so the goals, second paragraph here under chapter 2 of the story. One of the goals of good biblical interpretation is to understand the context. Context refers to the surrounding situation, characters, events, language, culture, etc. The story arc of the Bible is the foundation for our understanding of a given passage's context. Following the scripture's development of that storyline, theological line, and central figures is very helpful in understanding individual texts. Okay. Maybe if I were to just give you a more simple analogy other than David... I want you to imagine that 
you don't see all that's happening, but, but you can just see part of me. You can see me facing into a room that you can't see into, and you hear, hear me say, I love you. And your mind is trying to wrestle through what exactly is happening. And so as you walk towards me and you begin to see around the corner and you see what I'm talking to, imagine that there's different scenarios. One in which you see that I'm actually not talking to another person. I'm looking at a cheesecake. <laughs> Saying, man, I love you. It's good. One, I'm looking at my wife. And she's romantically looking back at me as she holds flowers that I've just given to her. One is I'm looking at our new pet dog, Blue. One is I am holding or looking at my daughter who is clearly on her sickbed and maybe nearing death. That word has meaning. Context drives you to hear the weight of it. There's a huge gap between what I mean when I tell my wife romantically I love you and what I mean when I look at our dog or a cheesecake. But generally speaking, the word, the, the word itself has not changed definition, but the strength and the depth and the, um, the power of the moment is context. Who, the scenario, the stuff around it. That's what we have to do with Scripture, is we have, to, we have to kind of turn the corner and see all that's going on in the room. And oftentimes, we're simply content just to see, I love you. And often, what we really want to do is we want to jump in front of the face of God who's saying, I love you. And without any understanding why or who he's saying, I love you to these people, we want it to be us. We want the blessings to be ours. We want the affection, the commitment to be ours. And I'm just trying to encourage you all. God does love us, but we got to understand the context with which he loves us, how he wants us to be like him, and all of the grace that is ours and the grace that isn't to us. Because there's a lot that's not only for us, but there's for others, grace. All right. So, understanding that, I think we need to understand the, the story's theological center um, in years past, and I think it's sustainable, I just don't think it's helpful, there has been a distinction between covenant theology and dispensationalism that dispensationalism genuinely pursues the glory of God as the theme of history, and covenantalists don't. I think it's a valid claim, it just is confusing on why it's a valid claim. So I'm not going to give you a defense on why covenantalists don't believe this, but I'm just going to more say, here's what I think we should all see. God is motivated by his own glory, God's plan, plan is to achieve his glory. Therefore, we will highlight how God receives glory through each era of governance. Although redemption is the central theme, a central theme in Scripture, the Bible is clear that God's glory is a larger, more unifying goal than redemption itself. I think it's helpful for us to see. The Bible is not a story of redemption. It's the story of God's glory. Redemption is one of the means by which he gets glory. Um, if we get that backwards, I think that will, will reshape how we view God's people. God's plans for his glory includes an exercise of his, exercise of his rule, but also his fellowship with mankind. In other words, God is getting glory through, through multiple factors, but one of them is governance, and the other is fellowship. As God, God gets glory through these um, works. So, 
the creation uh, purposes of God can be, I know this is not a word any of you ever use probably, adumbrated, in just a brief statement. He created all things in order to display his glory and majesty over a kingdom of time and space. Concomitant with that work was his desire for fellowship with sentient beings with whom he could share responsibility of inverse dominion. These beings, the human race, were created as his image and placed in a paradisical setting, a microcosm of the heaven and earth, to provide them an arena with which to exercise their derivative lordship. Now, I I realize those words there that half of you have not used and don't think of very often, but think of it this way, simply saying, God is extending his glory by governing the earth through a king who is his king who governs the earth for God. So so there's an instrument, mankind, that governs as king in God's place. Does that make sense? A home analogy, a family does this when they hire a babysitter. They want someone to govern their home, keep their kids safe, and rule their household so their children don't rule it because we all know that would be chaos for three-year-olds to rule the house. And so you hire a babysitter to rule it. Mankind is God's, if we can say, babysitter over this earth. The purpose is not because uh, the natives, in this case the animals and nature, would run wild, but so that God would get glory through his representative ruling the earth for him. God's ultimate purpose and unifying principle of his activity is to glorify himself by establishing a rule of loving sovereignty and fellowship with human beings in his image and dwelling with them forever. So each epoch typically has unique ways in which God relates to mankind as he reveals his glory in the progress of events. Each era should include new revelation, bringing new responsibilities, followed by a revelation of failure that God responds to in judgment and grace. Now again, I'm giving you kind of the general themes that we'll see as God kind of moves. If you think of these instead of epics as chapters, and so we would jump in right away. What's the first chapter in terms of human history? Creation until when? Anyone know? And really until we sin. So when you think about how God is managing the world, and we think in terms of chapters, there's this, this line of treatment of mankind that's different. Right? When, when Adam is created and he has no sin... There's no need for sacrifices. There's no need for confession of sin because there is none. There's no need for God to have rules regulating treatment to each other because there's no sin with one another. So there's, there's, it's a different world. Man and um, uh, mankind sins and it's like the ground shifts, right? Now God manages mankind differently because there's sin involved now there has to be some mechanism for dealing with the guilt of sin, dealing with the awareness of sin, those types of things. Does that make sense? Okay, so think of that happening multiple times in human history. I'm going to give you all seven that, generally speaking, any dispensationalist might hold to many of these, some to all of them. Some will reduce and kind of condense a couple of these. I'm just going to give you all of them so that you're, you're, you're educated, not that you have to commit to these to be a dispensationalist. Again, if you go to Locke's notes, he doesn't say you have to believe in seven dispensations. But I think it's helpful to see um, traditionally how it's been done. First, new revelation. God makes man. 
He puts them in the garden. What does he tell them to do? Stop reading your notes. What does he tell them to do? Be fruitful. Multiply. What else? Okay, have dominion. I love the low-key, quiet talking that everyone does at once, so I can't hear anything. What else did he say? I'm sorry? Okay, care for the garden. He's, he needs to work the garden. Work is not an aspect of the fall. Laziness is. Work isn't. Okay, what else does he say? Oh, I'm glad you got that one. That's a good one. Uh, no one mentioned that, but you can't eat the bad tree. Right? You can't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, so if you look down, I, I think uh, there are about six um, responsibilities that we see really quickly in Genesis 1 and 2. Reproduce. Subdue the earth. Rule the animals. Eat only vegetables. Cultivate the garden. Abstain from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, so they're not allowed to eat from that tree. That's it. Lockwood grows a whole lot by the time of Moses. <laughs> like what, 600-ish commands in the Old Testament for the Mosaic covenant people? All right, so the responsibility. Adam and Eve are to obey the Lord following the revelation given to them. They reproduce, rule, worship God in loving obedience, tend to the garden, and they're not to eat of the tree that's forbidden. Let me just point here on the dominion mandate. It's honored by men when they labor in an effort to discover the riches, secrets, and power of the physical earth and to use those discoveries to benefit God's image bearers and God's own glory. This is the basis of true science, culture, and civilization. I hope you caught that. Our job is, has not changed. I think this is one of those continuing principles that God wants us to take this earth and leverage it for the good of people and the glory of God. That includes your house. That includes scientific exploration. That includes art, music. Uh, these are ways in which we harness the known world and its physical properties, and we manage it for the glory of God. This stands in contrast to environmentalism. So what's the problem with environmentalism? In this case, man is often the enemy, and the environment is to be left pristine. This is rebellion and a rejection of God's word. Environmentalism is philosophically sinful. Okay? We, sh we, shouldn't, we shouldn't tease that one around. But if we are managing this for the good of mankind, for image bearers, then to consume it, wreck it, ravage it, is also a rejection of the good care God calls us to have for it. And which is why I think we, as we continue on, it stands in contrast to not only environmentalism, but what else? Capitalism. Which leverages everything within its power to grow and to, to collect for our own power and benefit. What's the goal of good work within our earth? The good of image bearers and the glory of God. You do it wrong, and you're rebelling against God. You're sinning. I think this has massive implications for how we farm, how we forest, how we mine, how we explore, how we develop science, 
I think this would, would remind us that with all sorts of medical experimentation, we, we need to be careful to protect life. It is not okay to ruin a baby to advance science. Just, there's all sorts of implications in the dominion mandate that I think modern Christians need to go back to for their ethics. Okay. Um, I'll finish reading this and then get off that hobby horse. Eugene Merrill says, God, the great king, thus designed to administer his kingdom through a surrogate ruler, not as an afterthought, but as the central feature of his grand design for history and eternity. This means Jesus Christ as king over the earth, and frankly, I would say king over the universe, is plan A. It is not as though when Adam and Eve sinned that our Father in heaven went, oh no. <laughs> oh, we got to work this one out. Okay, we can figure this thing out. I'll send in Jesus. He'll fix it. God's plan before he said, let there be light, was that there would be a king sitting on his throne ruling his earth I think always it was ultimately going to be Jesus. Theoretically, although I think this is kind of nonsense, if sin had never entered the world, I still think Jesus would reign. All right. Moving on. Failure. How did Adam and Eve mess up? Let me tell you the ways. Adam and Eve failed to trust God. They looked for a source of good for their lives outside of what God had revealed to them. That's faithlessness, right? They sought for wisdom apart from God's wisdom. Eve was deceived. Adam rebelled. Note, there was nothing about the fruit had any special quality or spiritual value. I, I don't think that is the point. Um, I think the point of, of eating a tree that was forbidden is they did what was forbidden. They rebelled. Okay, so I don't think when they ate the fruit, there was some uh, magical inoculation against living forever. And God had some corrupting DNA in that horrible apple or whatever it was. It's probably lima beans. Just saying, if it's going to be a bad fruit, it still is. Okay, judgment. Um, Adam, as representative of all mankind, was judged with death, so that death is the condemnation of every man because all men carry the guilt of Adam's representation. I think that's really clear in the New Testament. Let me just make a point here. I don't think man was ever cursed, as far as my reading would tell me. Uh, we have always been redeemable, whereas the snake is cursed, or Satan is cursed. Uh, point B here. The serpent is cursed as an animal to maneuver on his belly and eat dust. And, and there's some debate on whether or not he was um, modified at this point, or whether God gave meaning to who he already was. I don't know if that makes sense. So... If the snake was already in his belly, it's possible that God said, okay, now I'm going to put a divine meaning behind the belly crawling you live in. It's going to be, you know, a shameful thing. Or it could be that maybe he was more like a lizard on feet and God took him away. I tend to think the first, but I, I, I assume that good Christians do differ on this one. Um, the serpent is cursed because of, cursed as the person of Satan who used the serpent to damage the seed of Eve, um, but to be destroyed in return. Okay, so um, the serpent is, is personifying Satan, and ultimately Satan is destroyed in the work of um, Eve's seed, right? Um, this is the first bit of the gospel that we see in all of Scripture. Right, That this future offspring of Eve, who is named 
Who's the future offspring of Eve? Jesus. And I think Jesus, I mean, rather than saying, you know, the Son of God or anything like that, think of his humanity. It comes through Eve's line is Jesus. And I think you follow that, like, the reason that genealogies are important, the reason we follow this seed of blessing through Israel is because there's this hope embedded in the uh, books of Moses that this offspring is coming. You know, so we end the books of Moses, and the offspring is not yet here. And ultimately, then, we come into the, the monarchy with, with King David, this scion of Eve, who's ultimately going to be um, granted the heritage of ruling forever through Jesus. Okay, uh, point two. Eve is judged with sorrow and pain in childbirth. Eve is also judged to desire her husband, but he will rule over her. In essence, Eve will desire to control her husband, but God has established a different order. And ultimately, the man is to rule, not the human. Number three, um, Adam is judged with labor to coast and now curse ground to produce food. Again, work is not the curse. The curse is the futility of work. And some of you have experienced this futility. I feel like this every time we clean our house. We have six kiddos and two parents, and the eight of us can turn that house upside down fast. And it's like dishes and cooking and weeding and painting and repairing and car maintenance. How long before you have to do it again? It's just a matter of time. With use, this world degenerates. Um, and I think that's, that's the curse. Again, the curse is not working hard. The curse is that our working hard never actually answers the real issues. It will just grow more weeds. We'll have to recultivate things. Um, all right. Um, Adam is judged with impending death. All mankind was separated from God's presence. McLean says that man was to exercise his dominion under the direction of God. But, quote, it was just here that the first Adam dismally failed, setting aside the ultimate sovereignty of his creator and arrogating to himself the perilous authority to decide what was good for him and his posterity. Adam lost his immediate contact with God, invalidated his mediatorial position. Mediatorial, the word you're going to hear a lot, what does that mean? Okay, a, a mediator has the idea of a go-between, someone in between, so Adam lost his representative kingship, all right? He was the mediatorial king of the earth. He did it for God as kind of a go-between, a king between the rest of humanity and God himself. So he lost that mediatorial um, rule. Where was I at in my reading? Um, so he lost immediate contact with God and validated his mediatorial position and brought down a whole train of disasters upon the realm where he might have brought unmeasured blessing. This kind of makes you sad, doesn't it? It should. Adam could have been the gateway through which righteousness and goodness and sweetness flowed. Instead, because he did not trust the Creator, but trusted in his own wisdom, rejected the Creator's wisdom, he opened to us a gate that brought nothing but death and sorrow and suffering. Unless you think you'd be any better, we all would have failed to. Grace. God provided life. 
God promised life in Genesis 3.15, and God protected life in Genesis 3.21 through 24. And so I, I, think, I think sometimes we can look at these epics in history, and we see their failure, and, and we don't see the sweetness of our God. That is to not see it right. Okay, so God was so good in the creation of the world. He was sweet in the promised rescue of sinners, and he preserved us. I think what you see is the beginning of a substitutionary atonement in Genesis 3, 21 through 24. Does anyone know what happens in that section of Scripture? No, it's not the fall. It's actually recovery. Because it's, it's where, and, and it's just kind of this little, little thought at the end, you'll see. Adam and Eve, who had been naked and covered themselves with fig leaves, God covers them with the skins of animals. Now, I, I am just imagining things, and the Lord certainly is kind, so maybe he didn't intend to be as graphic as it could have been. But if someone kills an animal and skins it and covers you with skin, has anyone ever skinned an animal? Okay, a handful of you. Anyone want to have that skin on you as clothing in the next few minutes after skinning it? It would still be wet and cold with the membrane and the blood that you've just removed it from. Can you imagine the picture for Adam and Eve? However long they lived in the garden, there had been not one death, not one death of a living animal with breath in its lungs with blood in its body. And God takes and kills some innocent animals, skins them, and clothes you with their fresh skin to cover up your guilt and your shame because you have sinned. That's a substitutionary covering, atonement. And, and, and Moses doesn't spend hardly any time on that section I don't think an Israelite reading that misses it. I think the modern man misses it. Like, oh, cool, God gave him leather. <laughs> that's, that's not the point. And Moses isn't worried about cotton versus leather. Moses is, is pushing us to see that the appropriate covering for our guilt and our shame is an innocent life killed, lost, right? Okay, moving on then. The, the next section, and this is, I think, a little bit of a struggle, and I'll just kind of briefly cover this and we'll end for the day, is, is the issue of conscience or, or the, um, what we call the error of conscience, really the fall to the flood with Noah. So the next two chapters in Genesis, chapter 4 and chapter 5, we have mankind governed without government. And, and there's this kind of subtle verse where... Um, in Genesis 6, God says that he will not always strive with mankind in his spirit. And there might be some debate on this. This might be one of those kind of epics that, that some dispensationalists don't hold to. But it seems as though God is governing mankind through the, the pressure in his conscience to do right. That is, just like in Romans where there's kind of this intuitive sense of right and wrong in all of us. That God was using that powerfully to, to help people resist wrong and do right. If this is the case, then, uh, then it would stand as a kind of its own independent era. First, mankind was to respond in faith to the first good news in Genesis 3.15. Uh, blood sacrifices were to be instituted. I think you see that in Genesis 3.21 and in the failure with Cain and Abel of the sacrifices of, um, 
Cain and the respect that God had for the faith, that's what Hebrews says, that Abel sacrificed his sacrifice with. All right? And then Enoch prophesied that the Lord would come and execute judgment. So that's kind of an interesting piece of revelation. That's, it's one of the more clear ones we have from that era. If you go to your New Testament Bible and you read the book of Jude, there's this citation from the book of Enoch, which none of us believes is the Bible. Well, I shouldn't say none of us. None of us should believe is the Bible. And he says in there that God is going to come and judge. And so we have this prophecy that the Lord is going to come and execute judgment with his glorious ones in Jude 14 and 15. Here, responsibility. Mankind was responsible to follow the rule of the Holy Spirit and his internal working within the conscience. How did we do? Well, as every epoch has shown, we fail. God's restraint is removed. Um, and in Genesis 6, he basically says, I'm not going to strive anymore. Um, God gives a 120-year kind of countdown to the flood because of the failure. If you're to read Genesis 6, it seems like there is a bloodthirstiness in the culture, that there is sexual immorality in the culture. The culture is somewhat lawless and hard-hearted. Grace. God saves Noah and humanity through him. God spares the animals um, and the earth, the ark. God promises to never send a worldwide flood again in Genesis 9. So continuing principles, we still have a conscience, Romans 2. We have a substitutionary atonement offered as foci of forward-looking faith. That is, I don't think they were supposed to think the animal actually paid the price. What I think is the sacrifice was intended to be a lens through which they hoped in Genesis 3.15 of a son of Eve coming to rescue them. I don't know that they understood all the implications of what that meant. But I, but I don't think, according to Hebrews 10, that we were ever supposed to believe that an animal could truly pay the price for humanity's sin. Right? The, the substitutionary element requires a one-for-one -one correspondence. So who has to pay for our sin? Someone who's man. Someone who stands with us, represents us like Adam's sin. A man sinned. Therefore, we have to have mankind rescue us from our sin, our human sinfulness. All right. So, we have the conscience as a continuing principle. Substitutionary atonement is offered as this folk I have looking at forward-looking faith, and then salvation is through believing in the promises of God. Um, just to be clear, uh, sometimes our statements are less than clear on faith. Faith does not save you. God saves you on the basis of faith. But we can kind of shorthand that, and it's not wrong to do. We just want to be clear on this. Faith doesn't save you, but sometimes we'll say we're saved by faith. The Bible says we're saved by faith. It's not saying that faith is the powerful object, our Savior. Faith is how we hold on to our Savior. I, I just think that clarity could be helpful. So sometimes in notes I'll say, like, faith saves us. Please don't hear that wrongly. What I mean by that is faith is how we hold to our Savior who saves us. He does all the work. Our faith is not a work. Okay, fellowship and rule. God's provision of an animal sacrifice gave man the opportunity to respond to their sin with faith. The sacrifice carried the theological significance of a penal satisfaction. Penal satisfaction, the word penal means what? Pen yeah, it's the same root of penalty. So, so it's a satisfaction of the penalty required and a substitution. Okay, so the penalty is required and satisfied not through me paying the price, but through a substitute paying the price. This provided a means 
uh, to be restored to God. Remaining sin tainted the previously pure fellowship, though. And what a sad commentary. Right? Like, Adam and Eve walk with God in the garden. What's happening now? God is witnessing in their conscience. What a loss. I mean, maybe by analogy, some of you have experienced this. You've been away from your spouse for a long time. It is to lose the presence of your spouse and only be connected through telephone. What a loss to never walk with God like that. I, I, I don't think we understand the crushing sorrow Adam and Eve should have and probably did feel. To enter into the cool hours of the evening and know that God will not come like he used to. And maybe perhaps Enoch or someone like that experienced some of that joy, right? I mean, the Bible says Enoch walked with God. Perhaps that is not metaphorical. The sacrifice carried the theological significance of a penal satisfaction, provided a means to restore fellowship. God's plan for this dispensation was that he ruled through the hearts of men via the Holy Spirit. Each person would live by his Holy Spirit-guided conscience to help fulfill the dominion mandate. Thus, God would establish his reign. And I'm not sure why it says through me. I think it's supposed to be through men. I, I wasn't alive then, just to be clear. <laughs> I have not found the fountain of youth. Men, through men. All right. So, we'll end there. It's time for us to be done. I wasn't sure how far I would get. Um, again, I'm trying to give you a, fair, a fairly fast and quick overview of, of, of what a dispensation is. So, a dispensation speaks to a unique way which God governs a people. So, in innocence, he governed with very simple rules in the garden in a place where there was no sin. In the dispensation of innocence, he governed the human heart. Rather than through objective external rules or through human government, he governed the human heart, um, expecting them to offer sacrifice and still be vegetarian. Next week, we'll begin with um, Noah and that epic there from Noah to Abraham. All right, let me pray and you can be dismissed. Father in heaven, we want to understand your word. We want to understand it in a way that reflects your understanding. Uh, Father, guard us from pride. Give us a teachable spirit that thirsts to know the living word, uh, to be under its rule so that we might be a people that are truly faith-filled and reflect not the first Adam but the second Adam's holy obedience out of a love for you and a desire for your glory, Father. Lord, help us to, to be students who, who hear the word and do it. Lord, you have always been responding to our failures with sweet grace. And I ask that you would give our church a love uh, for the kindness, the strength with which you um, support our weaknesses, uh, your presence that reminds us that we are never alone, and you fellowship with us. And you mediate that through the word, through prayer, through the assembling together. Father, these are sweet graces, undeserved. And so we thank you for them, and we ask that you would teach us to find great joy in how you're working in this age. In Jesus' name, amen.